0: Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. And one of the things that you're getting from all three
1: of us here is the fact that a customer experience is not just rational. It's about how a customer feels, and it's about the psychology or the behavioral science that goes behind that.
2: It really is understanding human nature and human needs, the use of chatbots and so on. I think there's a delicate balance.
0: You do need to prototype things. You need to pilot things. You need to figure it out. You never know what your experience is going to be like, no matter how much time you've put into design until you get a real live human being there experiencing it.
1: Hi, this is Colin Shaw. Ryan isn't with me this week. It's a bit of a special podcast this week. I had the real privilege of being on a panel with Joe Pine and Lou Carbone, two pioneers of customer experience. And the Zoom meeting had about 500 people register for it. And it was the three of us talking as pioneers of customer experience, because we've literally been in the game since the very beginning, talking about the past and talking a bit about the future and where we see it going. The moderator of the event was Chantelle Botha. She is from an organization called Brand Love. They've been in customer experience for a long time. Chantel has also written a really good book called Customer Journey Mapping, and she works in the customer experience space. So it was great to have four of us talking about all of this. Chantel has been on various different sort of training events with Lou, and listen to me speak at conferences so we've all known each other for some time it was just a really good event so i hope you enjoy this there's some real gems in here that i think that you need to pick up on this recording goes on for a bit longer than our normal one so just be aware of that you may want to listen to this in two parts or whatever but i hope you enjoy it so here is Chantel introducing the event
3: Colin, uh, Joe and Lou, I would like for you to introduce yourself after my story. I would like to, for each of you to introduce yourself um, with just telling the audience what you believe your biggest contribution has been to this field and the things that make you incredibly proud and share a little bit of your philosophy and what drove you to make this contribution. And I'm going to pick the order. Lou, can we start with you?
2: and then Joe, and then Colin. Fantastic. I want to express my gratitude to each and every one of you. I think that the thing that was in the seminal article that Steve and I wrote as a Marketing Science Institute paper was the construct that you cannot not have an experience, that it's a question of how managed, or haphazard that experience is. And that led to this critical construct that Steve and I had begun to, and Steve was my co-author in that very first article. And what was really fascinating was we began to look at the world customer-back and said organizations need to look at the world customer-back versus company-out. And often that's referred to as looking inside out now and looking outside in. But I believe that we are at a very, very exciting time in the world of experience management. Uh, This is probably the most pivotal moment in the advancement of that work as a result of COVID and our sensitivity to what experiences are like as we go through life. So what we cause people to feel about themselves in an experience is the ultimate value that we deliver, which in turn affects how they think about the brand. And I think that unfortunately, as we look at the industrial age and the way that mindset and education took place, It was contrary to what Peter Drucker said, which was the purpose of a business is to create value and the reward is profit. And I think that it was just the awareness that experiences can be managed to create this emotional bond with customers.
3: Thank you, Lou. All right, so Joe, let's move to you.
2: I appreciate what Lou
0: had to say. I met him through Steve Hackle that he mentioned. I can still remember the first presentation I heard from him back in, I don't know, late 94, early 95 at the IBM Advanced Business Institute. And you just dovetailed perfectly with what I had discovered about the experience economy. So I'll say that the, the biggest contribution is really to understand that experiences are a distinct economic offering. That experiences are not just better services. It's not just being nice and easy and convenient as so many people interpret CX to be, which is the antithesis of a true distinctive experience, which has to be memorable and has to be personal, has to engage people inside, has to get them to value the time that they spend with you as a company. Now, where services are time well saved, experiences are time well spent. And that's the thing to understand is what business are you really in? Understand that the possibility exists there to get into the experience staging experience where people value the time they spend with you. They want to spend more time with you. And that is what experiences are really all about.
3: Excellent. Colin?
0: I don't know if Joe knows this,
1: but I read Joe's and Jim's book and I thought, great concept. How in the hell do I do it? How do I do it in a business? And moreover, one of the biggest questions we've always struggled with has been, how do I do this in a legacy organization? So it's okay if you're a new startup and you can start things afresh, but when you've got an organization that's 50, 60 years old, then how do you do it? So that's one thing, is the operation of it. The second part for me has been, again, what Lou was talking about, which was the emotional and the customer behavioral stuff, which again, Lou has, has led on. All too often, and still today, sadly, people think of a custom experience as more of a rational thing as opposed to an emotional, psychological, subconscious thing. And that becomes an issue. And I think the last thing I would mention is, and this will be a theme for me throughout this session, is just the bit about what drives value. So it was interesting on the the votes that people made The ROI came bottom. And I think, to be honest with you, that's part of the problem. The ROI comes bottom from people who are this audience. We've all bought into the subject, otherwise you probably wouldn't be here. But actually, CEOs, CFOs, the thing that they do this for is ROI. They're not doing this for a laugh. They want a return. So how do you get that return? And I think that's something that we bang on Ceaselessly about, and therefore, to answer your question, hopefully brought that conversation into the whole game as well.
3: Absolutely, and and I think Colin, so many people fear the ROI discussion. We lose track that it's it's the CFO's job to ask the questions about ROI, and I think a lot of the a lot of the shying away and a lot of the over focusing on ROI comes from just deep seated fear around taking a chance and sometimes getting it wrong which leads me to my next question I think we're here to celebrate you and the contribution you made but we're also here to discuss some of the failures I think my biggest learning in being an apprentice to uh, yourselves and many other mentors is learning how to fail with elegance and how to fail fast and just get back on the horse and and just keep going so my next question to you is where did you get it wrong? Maybe share a little story or an anecdote of, you know, where you got it wrong, where you where you failed.
1: How long have you got?
3: So let's so let's come and let's start with you, and then we go to Joe, and then Lou. I
1: right, so I think the the biggest thing that, that where I failed over the years has been to think that people are in the same mindset that i am so let me set the scene for you because this this sums it up for me i was doing a presentation to a german insurance company on why they should be looking at customer experience and how emotions evoking emotions drive value so this is a german insurance company to a group of actuaries and rightly so they said to me colin Prove to me that this stuff works. Where's the evidence? And basically, this was back in 2005, I didn't have the evidence, okay? And I just said, well, I think it's a good thing, and, you know, you blah, 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 blah. And it made me realise I have religion, okay? I believe in this stuff, and I cannot understand how nobody would see that this is the right thing to do, okay? And I just think to myself, you're clearly not intelligent enough to get it. I don't really <laughs> think that. But, but I don't see how you don't understand this. And I guess that what I realised over the years was I've got to prove it. So I can't just rely on the fact that someone's going to get this. I've literally got to get into the numbers and show people the science and the, and the algorithm and the statistics that prove that this stuff works Because the people, as you said, Chantelle, that have got the money or the hand on the purse strings are the CFOs. And they rightly ask you about ROI. And that's where literally from that moment forward, we shifted our attention to, okay, we now need to evidence how this works and come up
0: with what drives value for them.
3: Thank you for sharing that, Colin. Joe, let's let's hear from you.
0: I have the same affliction as as Colin. It's like, it's like I don't see how you can't get this. And I didn't go the data route. What I do is, one, is to show shining exemplars of what's going on, but also it's frameworks. Jim Gilmore and I often joke that we should have named the, f- the firm Frameworks R Us, because we develop frameworks that first describe what's happening and then prescribe what companies can do about it. And so my intention is to show you why this is the most logical thing in the world to draw you along a case using frameworks and exemplars to say that this is the most logical thing in the world to get the light bulb to come on, to get people to, to get it. It doesn't mean that they won't have to figure out what the ROI is and and that sort of thing, but it means that you've got to sort of create that, that acknowledgement in their head and their mind where they're shaking their head saying, yeah, okay, I get this. And now but you know, related to what Colin said too is what I, what I always hated was was okay you know that sounds all very innovative and that sort of thing well who else has done this to which I respond well if it's innovative then nobody else has done it right who else in our industry has done it well if nobody else has done it then this is a perfect opportunity for you to go to heads so many companies and so many executives are afraid to to be the first one out there not recognizing that's what innovation is all about and as you said Chantel, you have to be open to failing. You do need to prototype things. You need to pilot things. You need to figure it out. You never know what your experience is going to be like, no matter how much time you put into design until you get a real live human being there experiencing it. And only then will you truly know. I mean, I always tell companies to, you got to save at least 20% of your budget for after you you work, you do it so that you can then go around and fix the things because you just don't know how humans are are going to, to react which is that I'll mention this with Lou, one of the, the things I loved in his book. I, my, I've my always had editors accuse me of making up words every time I publish a book. And and they always say, well, that's not a word. And i say, well, it is now, you know, and the one that I always assumed Lou, that you made up was humanics, right? I love the, I love that contrast of humanics and mechanics and the, and it and it's a, I don't know if there's an equivalent for the customer but until that human customer gets in and works with the things that you've set up the the mechanics as well as the people in there and and give them the wherewithal to stage that great experience you don't really know what you have
3: amazing thanks Joe and I absolutely love the mechanics to humanics after I found Lou's article we actually put together a workshop for a executive team that was called mechanics to humanics and we put them in these blue overalls and we took them to a camp where they had to build boats and do all kinds of uh, interesting things. So thanks, Lou, for that. Lou, so let's hear from you.
2: Joe, I couldn't agree more that a new lexicon is what's necessary to a great degree with the creation of words that are different and distinctive so there isn't confusion I believe there's a lot of confusion and cloudiness in the way that people perceive. There's a lot of discussion and perhaps not the depth of understanding of how different an experience economy is versus the industrial age. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And often I'm challenged on, my God, you create more words but I think we need a new lexicon to move out of the industrial age and into the age of the experience economy. The primary philosophy that I work with is these constructs around clue consciousness, that we're driven by unconscious processing of clues and signals. And we make decisions emotionally and unconsciously, and then create rationalized intellectual alibis for the decisions that we've made. And these clues affect our emotions. These clues affect emotions that shape our attitudes and drive our behaviors. And what we've always looked at in traditional, what I would call experience 1.0, is the world of attitude and behavior. And what we need to begin to understand is emotions, and we need to understand the clues and signals that stimulate those emotions. And it's really that critical aspect that creates the the real power in experience management. It's about building systems that align the clues and signals, and it goes well beyond process improvement. And I think that there's often a rut of beginning to think that just process improvement uh, and defect elimination is what experience management is about. And I think it was either Joe or Colin that talked about uh, legacy systems and organizations that have built up these calluses over the years. But I think that this thinking and the acculturation of being customer-driven, not customer-centric only, but customer-driven, being inside the mind and heart and soul of the customer in terms of what they don't even know they know about how they want to feel in an experience. And that often we get caught up in wondering how they feel about us as a company versus how do we cause them to feel about themselves? which in turn is how they ultimately feel about the brand.
3: Absolutely. And there was a beautiful comment in the chat saying we, we hire humanics and then we turn them into mechanics. And I think the, the ability to design, Marley, my, my colleague, she sometimes we cry over clients not wanting to implement our ideas. And Marley asked me once, she said, when is it going to stop hurting? And I said, I hope never. Uh, because I think getting emotionally more comfortable, you know, that turns you into a good designer. Um, and I think the leaders that we work with that can care openly and kind of stick with the messiness of emotions, those are the leaders that can embark on these transformations. So for the next question, if we look into the future, what do you see coming next? We've been on a kind of an evolution of, of customer experience. We've got people across the world practicing uh, your frameworks, your methods, a variety of frameworks and methods. What do you think is next? Is it relevant? What are we going to see next? And Colin, can we start with you? Is CX nearing its end of its shelf life? What's your thoughts?
2: It's a
1: really interesting question because when I started looking into all this stuff back in turn of the century that sounds old it makes you sound really old when you go you know back in the turn of the century like everything else i think there's a bell curve and if i think back to my lifetime you've gone tqm business process reengineering, crm leading up to customer experience and the way i see it is these things are getting absorbed into the the way that organizations do business and if you then start to look at covid being an accelerant, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we're starting to get to a point where, and there's a phrase that I really like, that I did a podcast on this a couple of weeks ago, which is customer science, okay? So this sort of falls along the lines that we were just talking about really, and this sort of more sort of data approach. So my view personally is customer experience is somewhere coming down the other side in terms of an overall discipline, right? So, what's emerging? What's the next wave? And I think that you've got a sort of a perfect storm coming between artificial intelligence and all the technology that that brings, data and big data, and therefore all of the information that we've got, and then the interpretation of that data through behavioral science, the whole area of psychology, understanding what people really do and therefore being able to anticipate and predict what the customer is going to do through the use of data okay so at the moment one of the companies that are doing this is amazon so if you look at amazon they know what i buy they know the food i buy because i've got an echo dot they know when i go to bed they know because i've got a ringo on the door they know how many people visit my house they know the type of music that i play they know what i watch on television and all of these are data points that enable them to come up with a profile of me okay and this is more of a psychometric profile than just the segmentation because my view most company segmentation is awful particularly in the business the business space they say I've got big customers I've got small customers and I've got medium-sized customers so I guess without me spending the next four hours on this because I get quite excited about this you get in this sort of fusion of AI data and behavioral science and I think those three things come together to enable us to provide and anticipate customers needs much more particularly in the digital experiences that we provide. And all of that, I would put under a banner of customer science, basically.
3: Excellent. So let's go to Joe. So what do you think is next?
0: Anything you can predict as next is already here in some way, right? And I think, I'll just stick to sort of the post-COVID environment. Two things I think that it has accelerated, not caused, but accelerated, is one, of course, is the shift from physical to digital experiences, but where the real answer lies in the fusion of the two. You know, to have experiences that fuse, a real, and the virtual, I think, is where we're going to head. I talk with companies about Twitchification, that if you think about what Twitch does, right, they take this this digital experience and they film it and show it to others, you know, all these esports. But then the key experience of Twitch is actually all the social interactions that people have looking at the entertainment of somebody playing a, a video game. And we see that here. I mean, even rudimentarily here, where you've got the chat going with all the questions coming out that we can look at, we can see, and and there'll be people to get more value out of what they read in the chat than out of out of anything that we say. And you amp that up with, the, with all the possibilities of what Twitch and, and other mechanisms can provide. And I think you increasingly see that, that fewer people will go to a live event, whether it's a conference or a festival or a concert or whatever it may be, but then many more an order of magnitude or two potentially will be online at the same time watching the live event, but then talking to each other and having, having an even better overall experience, although you miss out on the being there factor. And then yet another set, will be able to watch it filmed and edited later, you know, for another mission fee and so forth. It's really amplification of that live experience. The other thing that I think that the corona crisis is accelerating is the recognition among people that, I don't want to say consumers here, I want to say people, that what we really value in life is meaning, that it's the meaningful experience to have. We sort of recognize, hey, we're, you know, at least in the first world, we're at peak stuff. We don't need more stuff. What we really value is those shared experiences we have with our loved ones, with our friends, even with our, our colleagues. And so we want more of those and less of all this other crap that's out there that, that sucks up our time. Right. Again, if experiences are about time. We want to shift. One of the things like what Colin all said about what Amazon learns and other companies there is so what I call genius platforms that they are creating with AI and all the data and everything is that it vastly saves us time. They just start doing stuff that we don't need. What do we do with that time, right? We spend that time on the experiences that we value, the meaningful experiences that again, are increasingly what we we seek and what we desire.
3: Excellent, thank you for that.
0: How are you gonna grow your market when
1: everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since 2005, we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you.
3: I see some lovely comments coming through in the chat. We will save the chat and send it to all of you so that we don't lose the comments in the chat. Thank you for your positivity and sharing. Lou, so let's hear from you, your thoughts.
2: Yes, I think that what we have to understand is that customer experience and experience management, whether it's customer or employee, is not a bolt-on. That it is a way of doing business that it is a commitment that has to be embedded in the values of the organization. And I'm very, very impressed as we begin to look at the experience economy and begin to look at considering the total experience value. I'm very impressed by some of the work that's going on, Dr. Tom DeWitt and To think about creating and they're working on the creation of a master's degree in customer experience. This is so long overdue because what we're operating on is industrial age platforms, and we are living in a different era. And the era that we're living in now is what I refer to. And we're on the precipice of, and yet we've been doing work and creating tools for several decades that deal with what I call fusionomics and probably experience management 2.0. And that's a greater depth of knowledge of the science and art of experience, that experiences are no longer linear in any way, that it's like a pinball machine, and that what do we do to create consistency in terms of that emotional bond. And that responsibility is not siloed. We actually had a client that fused HR and marketing into a single department because they were in the restaurant business and realized the single greatest asset from a marketing perspective was their people. And I think we're entering into an era of virtuality which is literally understanding how to humanize technology and how do we begin to understand the elements and the role of technology. The technology is not a replacement and automation is not a replacement. In fact, the frustrations with some cable operator and spending three hours on chat and then talking to someone, it really is understanding human nature and human needs, the use of chatbots and so on. I think there's a delicate balance. The realization that product attributes, features and benefits actually have less influence on consumer decision-making than what they process unconsciously, emotionally and from a sensory perspective of the total experience. And, and I think that that is incredibly important.
3: So I'm hearing a blend of kind of going back to basics, Lou, and, and really looking at the deep emotions, Joe, the decluttering and almost the reprioritization that we're seeing just in human beings. Now looking at what's really, really important to them and then blending that with the predictive science bit, Colin, that you mentioned.
2: As Colin said, it's emotional behavior and and it's behavioral aspects of human beings. And that hasn't changed, that we're all still human. The world around us is changing, but there's still basic human needs that unconsciously we process experiences through this filter of limbic pathways of the brain that actually create decisions before we even know we made the decision.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what I'm noticing from many companies is if I look at how they prioritizing their customers over their employees and the fact that humans are humans and we need to design for both the, the customer and the employee and the companies who have been so fixated on customer experience and customer journeys, they've really missed an opportunity to create more human-centered companies. And now some of the choices that leaders need to make are really, really hard choices. I have a question just much more on the practical side, and then we're going to open for audience questions. So I want us to shift now into a very practical set of, from your wisdom, drawing on your wisdom. the folks who are on this call today, if they had to do three things and one of those things need to be so practical that they can actually start doing it tomorrow. What would be your guidance in terms of three things that people should be focusing on right now, the three practical things that they should be doing, how they should be prioritising those things, and if you could give them one thing tomorrow, when you get back to your kind of your, your desk, wherever that might be. What are the things that people should be doing? And I'm going to give you an opportunity just to jump in. When you're ready, just start sharing.
1: The first thing for me I'm going to repeat is about the ROI. Because if you want to turn, if we go back to the, to the title of this session, turn it from sort of evolution to revolution, why would somebody support this? They will only support this if you can prove the ROI. Okay, as we know, all too often people shy away from that. And the bit that I would ask them to think about within there is things like lifetime value of the customer, all the costs involved. We've never been involved in a implementation of customer experience that doesn't end up saving money. Okay, because there is huge cost by organisations in failures, in, in overlaps, in gaps and everything else. And I think if you can start to identify the true ROI of your program, you're going to get a hell of a lot more support. It also will help you prioritize which thing you, you do first and which you don't. And again, ironically, all too often, organizations spend too often, too much time looking at things that go wrong rather than the upside of, well, what's the opportunity? So where do I spend my dollar? Do I spend it on fixing the things that are going wrong? Well, I can get X return for that, but you know what, there's an opportunity here. We spend a dollar here. We actually get 10 times what we're gonna get down here. So that would be certainly be my number one.
2: As I look at the construct of where we are and where we need to be and three things, I think there's an overarching overarching piece that, Experience will never go away. I mean, it's what life is all about, is experiences. It's a collection of experiences and experiences, and its simplest definition is an impression. And what is amazing to me is that we're actually seeing in some industries shrinking of and elimination of CX positions. My question is why? Why? And I think that what we've seen is a lot of whining because organizations are looking for ROI and what's the importance of this work, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe in something that I call return on strategy. And how do I accelerate the momentum and velocity of a strategy which will lead to ROI? And I think that is particularly critical. And so the three things that I would recommend are based on three ways of looking at the world. And I think it was a quote by William Arthur Ward that said that the pessimist complains about the wind in a sailboat. The optimist expects the wind to change, but the realist actually adjusts the sails. And it's time to adjust the sails. And the three things that I think are going to be critical and urge businesses to do now is to deepen their understanding of the new order and let go of industrial age thinking that looks at experience as service, but becoming customer driven and going beyond customer centricity. The second thing is focusing on knowing more about how customers think versus what they think. Opinion and the way that we actually formulate Our understanding and delving into unconscious thought and emotions is critical. And lastly, it is adopting a vision of a return on strategy, creating experiential value. And that will result in an ROI. And I think that we need to become champions versus whiners or caught in a corner of, gee, no one really appreciates the work that's being done in customer experience. I have to convince people. It is literally building a culture that understands that the ultimate value they create is in the experiences that they create
0: mine will build on Lou's. Lou, I love your focus there on, on what I always call mindset. You, know, you got to have the right mindset. And if you have that, then everything else can follow. And so the first thing that, that people can do, well, you don't even have to wait till tomorrow. They can do it while they're still on the, still with all of us here. And that is to answer the question, what business are you really in and recognize that you're in the experience business? That again, it's not services, it's not services plus. You know, as Lou keeps talking about, right? you're in the experience business, that business right now. in. Now, that's, you may not be the head of the company. You may be down in some, some position and you're know, focused on CX and that. But if you decided, then you can start to make an influence for that. And then if you if you do decide that as, yes, we're in the experience business, then the, the second thing and the logical conclusion then is to figure out how you can charge admission for your experiences, that economically- That's what turns a a service into experience. That's what turns any economic offering into experience if you charge for the time your customers spend with you, you know, through an admission fee, a membership fee, a per play fee, a per-period fee, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so a company should always ask, like, what would we do differently if we charged admission? It's only when you charge admission that you create the wherewithal to create an experience worth having, worth that admission fee, and it also sends a signal that this is an experience worth having. And that's crucially important. And then the the third thing I'll say is to understand too that because experiences happen inside of us, right? It's our reaction to those events that are staged in front of us. That there's not enough focus still yet on customizing to the individual customer. Part of that customer centricity to customer driven to customization. To understand that that if you customize your goods, your services, and your experiences then you'll, you'll engage people much more fully. You'll do things for them individually. That too much of experience design is still really a mass experience rather than uh, recognizing that they're inherently personal because they happen inside of us.
3: Absolutely. And if I look at the, the tried and tested methods and the framework, Lou, if I look at your work around the motif and, and closing the, the brand canyon, and Colin, I look at your work around, you know, moment mapping. I really think this is a, a real call for all of us to go back to basics. We've been given this opportunity to almost press that reset button. And and Lou, I love your metaphor of adjusting our sales and really now paying attention to the mechanics, to humanics. And I think aside from if I, if I look at Lou's conviction and You've got to believe this stuff. And, and Colin's mathematics and the accounting piece in between getting the action and, and believing it, I do think there's a piece that I've certainly seen lacking in many of our clients around discipline, that this takes discipline and it takes a commitment. There is the science, there's the art, and there's a little bit of magic, but it takes discipline. And this is not difficult. It's not difficult to do. It's hard because it takes discipline to actually see the results, to track the results. And I think this is a call to all of us to not get stuck in, you know, fixing things, but really looking at what are the disciplines required to redesign what we're trying to do.
1: One thing that I would not take issue with you, but I would change a little, is rather than go back to the basics, okay, I think you need to go back to the basics with an enhancement. Okay. And one of the things that you're getting from all three of us here is the fact that a customer experience is not just rational, right? It's about how a customer feels and it's about the psychology or the behavioral science that goes behind that. All right. So let me just tie this back into what you're saying about the moment mapping piece. So, journey mapping, pretty basic, good tool. But how many organisations are looking at their customer journey from a rational perspective? This is what my customer's doing. From an emotional perspective, this is what my customer's feeling like. And what are the psychological, Lou would call them, clues that we are getting and that we want to put in there? And how do we understand that behavioural science part that customers will tell you one thing and they will do another? Great example I've always had of that is Disney know that when they ask people what they want to eat at a theme park, Disney know that people say they'd like to have an option of a salad. Disney also know that people don't eat salads when they go to theme parks. They eat hot dogs and hamburgers. So fill the park full of salads, you're not going to make any money. In fact, you're going to lose money because they're all going to go off. For me, the important part of that is all three of us are saying is you've got to understand human behavior and understand the experience is inside of you, and that is not necessarily logical. And the way that you interpret, therefore, the data and how to design your experience may not just be a logical, rational thought.
0: Hashtag exactly.
2: Um, yeah, Colin, it, it's it's so fascinating because this whole idea of being a visionary, and those without vision will perish. Uh, I absolutely believe that. And in my early career, I had the opportunity to work with folks at Disney during the construction of Epcot Center. And... You're showing your age now, Mike. <laughs> the, uh, the last Imagineer that Disney hired just passed away, George McGinnis, who was a very dear friend. And when I was a journalist, I actually got to interview him. And the great story was Dick Nunes, the president of Disney, standing in the swamps in Orlando, where they had just purchased all this land and Walt is looking off into the distance. And he says, I picture a lake here. Well, they're all looking behind him where there was already a lagoon. But he said, no, 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 we're going to fill that in and we're going to create the lake so that it actually makes an impression that it isn't happenstance, that it's designed specifically to create this connection unconsciously. I just think that the power of what some people knew instinctively, jobs, and yet everyone wants to be an Apple, everyone wants to be a Disney, but you've got to let go of legacy thinking that comes out of the industrial age to do it in the lagoon
3: <laughs> all right thank you for that colin i'm going to now ask madely to start giving us some questions from the audience that she's received through through menti and if you haven't put questions in menti yet let's just see how we're doing on the questions so there's plenty of questions all right madely i'm going to hand over to you and if a question is directed to a specific person if you could just name them Otherwise, let's open up and whoever wants to grab the question can take
4: it. There's lots of questions about legacy companies. So how to address certain things in legacy companies. So I'll ask this one. You rightly mentioned in your book that emotions are literally the drivers for CX. But in legacy firms, the management tend to rely so much more on historical data than new trends. How do we ever overcome this?
1: So that for me, you've got to show them the numbers this goes back to my story of earlier what we know is that most organizations are senior people are are older okay simple as that and they have they got there they got there by being good at the things that they do so you've got to show them some numbers you've got to prove that this stuff works unless you've got a visionary there okay and in my experience most organizations don't have that so you've got to give them some data you've got to run some experiments try it out some pilots and you've got to prove the data you've got to do research and you've got to provide them with the data so this goes back to the conversation we were having where people said to us show me that emotions work and we couldn't so we spent two years looking for which emotions drive value and this came out in my this see this wonderful white book up here dna of customer experience how emotions drive value Okay, because that's two years worth of research with London Business School, where you can statistically show by evoking certain emotions, they will drive value. That gets the CEO's and CFO's attention. So you've got to prove it.
2: In fact, Colin, that question of the economic value of experience and emotion, you're probably familiar with Jag Seth at uh, Emory, and they wrote the book, Firms of Endearment and they compared good to great firms to firms of endearment. And the question in firms of endearment was name a company that if it went away tomorrow, you would mourn the loss of, or your life would be changed. And the good to great firms were outperformed in terms of financial performance. I think it was about 1,518% they outperform the good to great firms because of that emotional bond over a 15 year period. And I think it's the numbers. And then I think the second piece is, until you experience it, there's a thing that we do, which is a clue scanning workshop where we'll take senior executives and have them see how haphazard the experiences are. And it's almost overnight a CEO will say, we need to allocate more resources there are times I've thought I was going to be fired after one of those <laughs> when someone left the room and he said, I'm reorganizing departments tomorrow. But until you experience it yourself, you're so divorced as senior leadership that you think every experience is the experience that you get <laughs> almost. Sure. Very, very interesting. But it's the fusion of that economic factor and understanding where I am in terms of managing that emotional connection. So the next question is to Joe.
4: What is the future of work and how will CX Discipline align with the new way work is being done? Just a small question there, Joe.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the entire future <laughs> of work in 30 seconds or, or less. Obviously, more and more professional work is going to be done from home. People have figured out that, hey, you can be really productive. I was still way back when one of, if not the first telecommuter at IBM back in 1991. And I couldn't believe how much more productive I was working from home than going into the office. But what it means, though, is that you need to really create the human bonds it takes to work with other people. You know, No worker is an island, and you still need to affect those. And so you need to actually have a great employee experience that takes that into account. One of the things we really haven't talked about today, and, and, and something that I haven't written anything about until earlier this year, but I've long recognized that if you want a great experience for your customers, that you have to give your employees the wherewithal to be able to do that, and you need to create a great experience for them. And here, I'll also raise one thing that is, you know, as Lou Will knows from his Disney experience in that, one of the key things about any experience is that you have an organizing principle. Right? And at Disney and elsewhere, it's called a theme. And the theme is the organizing principle. It's what allows you to ha- make sure you have a cohesive experience that hangs together. Well, you take that organizing principle up a level or two and apply it to the entire company organization. And what you really have is a purpose and a meaningful purpose. So we need to have that employee experience built around the meaningful purpose of the organization that allows everybody to align together and align what gives their own lives meaning at work with what the purpose of the organization is. And that's when great things can happen because everybody is aligned together. You don't have to micromanage them. You don't have to command and control. You can then basically unleash them to do what they do best. That's the future of work.
4: And it sounds like a bit of more trust, trusting people a little bit more, right? So, that leads us to a question for Lou. Lou, um, somebody saying here that speaks to the employee experience and saying that, you know, their company is selling customer experience and customer service as one of their main benefits, but it doesn't reflect internally. What can they do about that?
2: Yes. mean you know, The reason that we name the company Experience Engineering and not Customer Experience Engineering is that... There are so many experiences. There are even marriage and relationship experiences that are unconscious and clues that we perceive.
0: You engineer that marriage experience with your wife, Lou. You have to be careful. I have to watch what clues I point
2: out. (laughs) I've had had to journey map mine. (laughs) But it is so critical to understand that the world is built around experiences and business is no different. And employee experiences, work that we did with John Deere on a global basis was written up in Jen and Chip Heath's book, Moments That Matter. And that was all about the employee experience designed by a team of what were ambassadors, brand ambassadors from all over the globe in terms of designing a number of elements in an employee experience. The one that was written up in the book was the first day experience and its effect on churn and the return on investment in lowering churn. So I believe that we have to become experts in experience management and the value of experiences and then apply that in multiple ways. But be cautious in terms of journey mapping our, our relationships with our wives and, and partners <laughs> and uh, clue scanning those. It's dangerous yeah. territory. We usually issue a warning before a clue scanning workshop, do not go home and try this on your own, yeah. within your home.
1: I obviously haven't attended one of your workshops right and didn't realize I was meant to be doing that.
3: <laughs> if I can just quickly add one of the comments in, in the chat, I think it was Rachel Talking about leadership, and I think that leadership experience and really looking at the leadership crisis that the world is experiencing right now and almost redesigning that leadership experience to move from command and control to a much more collaborative, open workplace where people are trusted more.
2: Absolutely. The clues and signals just of the the president riding around in the back of a vehicle, I mean... (laughs) We are clue conscious, we watch these things and then we interpret them unconsciously and it's our mindset that takes that and I think that we're much more clue conscious today than probably ever before with COVID and all of these other things that are happening so I think the potential for change is huge.
1: was really interesting for you it was really great being on the stage with or the virtual stage with joe lou and Chantel. it's really insightful seeing where we think customer experience is going and actually realizing that the three of us were saying the same thing so hope that's been of use and we look forward to talking to you next week cheers